Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Before we get on to today's episode, when Robin will be chatting to Rory Joseph, let's start, as we always do, by thanking our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go if you'd like to subscribe and become one of them and get extended episodes each and every week and lots of other goodies as well. New series of Uncanny Hour is in pre-production at the moment, so that will be coming pretty soon, hopefully. Remember that... Nine Lessons for the Spring, or for Spring, basically Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People that we had to postpone in December is in the spring now. So April 16, 17 at King's Place, tickets on sale now. Check out the website and our social media for all the other goings on. But now let's get on to today's episode. Here's Robin. Hello, welcome to uh, Josie and Robbie's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie is is still uh, on uh, kind of maternity leave at the moment, but she will hopefully be back for a couple of episodes um, quite soon. Before we actually get started with today's interview, I'm going to quickly mention we're recording this on the 31st of January, and the 31st of January uh, this year would have been the 80th birthday of Derek Jarman. So all I want to tell you, everyone who's listening now, is go out and buy one of the diaries of Derek Jarman. A lot of people find a good place to start is Modern Nature, which is uh, a lot of it about the incredible garden that he made um, just near his, his his cottage near Dungeness, where there's basically there's almost nothing would grow because it was in in the the the, the shingles and the shale and all of those things. Um, but anyway, Derek Jarman, a truly uh, remarkable individual as an artist, as a gardener, as uh, an activist in times of Section Twenty Eight, um, and uh, and also the age crisis of the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. So it would have been his eightieth birthday on the day we're recording this go and find some of his stuff um today we are going to be talking to someone who uh well it's it's an interesting i'm trying to i've been trying to work out who else has done this which is uh rory joseph decided to change the kind of uh the band he was in the what the music he was creating to some extent um and uh and the name of the band became william the conqueror uh it's uh three albums so far investigation into his childhood and now it is also a novel as well and I can't, Rory, I can't think of who else has done that as yet. That that kind of specific. I mean, obviously, many artists may well be exploring something in their childhood, but in a more and then, but then to turn it into into a book as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I still haven't put my finger on which bit came first, and you know, and I'll sort of admit that I probably didn't start with the idea of William and it all being fleshed out in my head. It was just like a. I'd been, I'd been a solo artist for, I don't know, like a singer-songwriter type for about eight years and putting names out under my own, uh, putting albums out under my own name. And just reaching a point where I remember looking at a poster of me and feeling really disconnected from whoever that person was. You know, it certainly didn't feel like it was me. So there was an idea that maybe, you know, what would it be like if I changed my name and, you know, performed under something different? So I had that idea floating around and at the same time, there was, I had this, or around the same time, there was like a, an image, or I don't know whether it came to me in a dream or just like a, 
a vision of or something of a boy walking through a wood and looking over his shoulder and the name William the Conqueror just kind of really bright above his head. Um, and it was sort of striking enough that it was worth investigating, you know, because he was kind of looking over his shoulder and what was behind him was as unknown as what was in front of him. And it was like he was sort of surrounded by trepidation or something. And I don't know, the two things kind of merged, you know, this idea of, of my own identity and then trying to figure out who this boy, who was sort of clearly me in some respect, but, but also not me, you know? Um, so somewhere around there, the two things converged and I started performing uh, under the name William the Conqueror. This is like off, off the radar. So I was still making my bread and butter, you know, being Rory Joseph, this kind of uh, indie folk singer or whatever I was labeled. Um, but it didn't feel like it was me. And I was starting to do this William the Conqueror thing and it just started to make sense really, just trying to figure out what it was. And I suppose the novel was one of the last things to come along because as a, I've been a songwriter for eight, nine years or something. So William started to find his way into the songs quite easily. And then going off this image, I thought maybe I could try and write a script, you know, cause I did, I did film studies at university and um, I very much discovered that to be a director, you needed to be organized and that wasn't me. So moved into the script writing world and wrote some short films and a couple of pilots here and there. So just naturally felt like maybe this could be a script, you know, and then I hit a wall at the point at which I realized um, the soundtrack relied on the songs of Bob Dylan and Kurt Cobain and thought, well, I'm <laughs> never going to be able to make this movie, sure, clearly. So I, for a while, I tried to like change it and, and write it so that the dad's obsession was with like obscure blues music, thinking that maybe I could get around the soundtrack problem that way. But the lyrics of Bob Dylan were just, they were too integral. I love that. I love that idea of going from a very early age. My dad was always obsessed with copyright free advertising <laughs> jingled music. And that Basically was his. Was. Yeah. <laughs> that was the idea. Yeah. But, but obviously that, you know, I hit a wall. It just, it didn't, it didn't work. It relied too much on popular music and popular films and things like that. So then, then I just sort of figured I'd write a, and all, all, all the while, you know, the William the Conqueror, the band and the performance stuff is kind of growing and we started to make albums and put them out. And, and in the background, I was just trying to organise what, what this William thing was, really, who this person was. I, I put it down to, I was talking to someone the other day about the fact that I had children really, really young. So I met my wife when I was 17 and she had Alfie who was already one um, and he became my stepson and we had Tilly a couple of years later. So by the time I was 19, I had two kids. So I went from like childhood into adulthood, like overnight. And so, as you know, from having kids, you know, you, you become the least important person in your own life. So there was just no time for me to analyze or think about my own childhood and, you know, why I was maybe the way I was or whatever. Um, but then I, still yeah, I find it interesting, though, that you've done this because I, w when I was reading the novel mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the, we, we have the two narrating voices in there. We yeah. have the interrupter. And the first thing that made me think of was Johnny Vegas, because <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, Johnny's book, Becoming Johnny Vegas, which is basically about Michael Pennington and then about um, Johnny and, and what Johnny was and John, you know, and, and, and with and I thought and now now that you've mentioned the fact that to explore who you are, you removed your own name from the narrative. And that, that 
I see that's an interesting thing I find as the the need sometimes to detach to actually get the truest voice. So you see that in in the very best ventriloquists, you know, someone okay. like Nina Conti, part of, you know, she is definitely not saying that voice is a character of a monkey or whatever else she has in her hand at the point. That is her voice, yes. a, okay. a deeper voice. Johnny Vegas, you know, that is part of Michael. That is, but but the one that was secreted. So I find it very mm. interesting that you have, you know, that's where William the Conqueror comes from, a, a desire to show a truer sense of at least some of your story. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, it was like, it was like, because my kids reached the age that I was when I left home and, you know, settled down thinking that I was absolutely ready, which I kind of was ready to, but my kids went, zoomed past that age without looking like they were ready to settle or leave home at all and I don't know that's what kind of, that's what made me start thinking who who was that 17 year old kid that was like so brash and so sure of himself and so full of confidence that uh, that he would make the decisions he made you know and that's why I liked the name William the Conqueror wherever it came from because it just seemed to I liked the idea of a character that's sort of so um on the one hand, unbelievably confident that they'd openly call themselves William the Conqueror, but at the same time, sort of detached from reality and naive enough that they wouldn't think it might be jarring, you know, in the real world to call yourself that as well. You know, there's a there's a real detachment there. So it's sort of confident, but a bit daft at the same time, which sort of sums me up in as, as a teenager, certainly. Yeah. And as you, I mean, writing the novel, and it's a very, very clear voice. I mean, I'm fascinated because I'd never even heard this before it's called uh, apparently you've written auto fiction haven't you that's that that's the term is that what it is okay i i didn't know until i read i read patricia lockwood's um recent novel uh what's it called no one's talking about is it no one's talking about these things which is is uh i'd not realized when i was reading it that it's basically exactly what happened to her oh, right but you read it as a novel Yes. Uh, yeah. And then someone said, well, of course, that's autofiction. It's a very popular thing. And I thought, and, and I thought, I wonder if you know you'll be writing autofiction as well. Yeah. Don't even... <laughs> yeah. But it's an interesting, and, and now that I know about this kind of, I mean, one of what I find, I think all autobiographies are going to be are autofiction because we, we are by necessity of the way that our brains work, unreliable narrators of our past. There, there, there's no way around that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, another phrase I heard was someone called it a meta-biography, which I thought was that sort of in line as well, because it's anyone that knows me clearly can see that the, the bits that are obviously from directly taken from my life. But I was sort of, I made sure to put some things in there or rather remove some things from the story that, that gave me enough separation. Like, so William in the book is an only child, whereas I have an older brother, you know, which is a quite a, I don't haven't asked my brother how he feels about being left out, obviously, but um, uh, little things like that, just to just to make sure there was definitely some objectivity to to sifting through whatever memories I I, I had. You know, I wasn't I wasn't completely empty-handed either. It wasn't like I didn't just like sit in a room and let my childhood come to me. You know, I had some photos and stuff, and the, the most useful thing I had was this box of songbooks that I had from when I was a teenager that sort of became like um i don't know like a code that i could try and crack because you you had um xena barry on recently yeah talking about her um how she used to write letters as a way of trying to communicate the madness that was kind of going on around her so similar to that it, but it was songs you know that was that's where i put everything so having these songbooks was 
I was reading them, reading through them, just thinking, well, I must have been, I must have been trying to communicate something, but most of it's absolute drivel and just trying to be poetic or like Billy Corbin or Kurt Cobain or something. But there must have been something that I was trying to communicate. So I spent quite a lot of time trying to sort of de decipher that. And that's sort of where the band came from, where the music came from for the band was trying to appease my younger self somehow or try and figure out what it was he was trying to say um, at a time when he didn't necessarily have the tools to do so. So what was it? I mean, I've read that you were a, a, a big Herman Hess fan. Um, well, uh, uh, I mean, I am. Yes, uh, he he lacks humour, <laughs> if I, if that's my analysis of him. But he's one of those people that I've kind of had to get into, just like I had to get into Bob Dylan as a kid in order to be able to have conversations with my dad. Hess is another one of those. My dad is obsessed with Herman Hess, so if I don't read Herman Hess, then most of the time, you know, I won't be able to have a conversation with my dad. So I do love him, but um, but it's almost like necessity rather than I sort of stumbled across him and fell in love with him and he's a beautiful writer what, what do you make of Hess what's what's your I do, do you know what I don't know because I was thinking because you're down in Cornwall that the, the main Hess thing I think of is how much he was quoted by Colin Wilson who <laughs> you know wrote the book The Outsider and Mysteries and various others and 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 The Outsider and beyond that Herman Hess was always, like I've never I've read some of the shorter ones yes yeah. uh, is it Nulp is it Nulp, I'm Nulp. Trying to remember. yeah, Nulp's yeah right. I think that was the yeah. first one that I ever read I think I read that when I was about 18 years old but yeah. uh Colin Wilson was obsessed Excessively going about the glass bead game, um, which is a bit of a big one. That one, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounded the con. I I read the introduction a few times and just to try and get my head around the concept. But I don't know. You know, sometimes um, you're mad. You know, like sometimes you might read the blurb of a book or, or like see the trailer of a film, and what it does to your imagination is can turn out to be so much more exciting than the actual end product itself. You know, so I, I feel like that sometimes, and I'm comfortable um reading bits and feeling like okay i'm not i know i'm not going to understand all of this but i'm quite happy for my imagination to sort of fill in the blanks if you know what i mean i think it was um i was silicon in the bath recently with you you talking to tim minchin about the wonders of the universe that was a that's a legitimate memory i have in my head now thank you for that um but you were talking about yeah come, uh, overcoming that frustration of feeling like you spend a lot of time reading or listening to podcasts or whatever but you don't feel like you're understanding it or you don't feel like you're learning anything and uh, you know I've been guilty of that having that frustration of like I just want to know everything I want to know more and I don't know some some uh, because of, because I'm not a very good reader I think I grew up sort of not really figuring out you know which books I liked and I don't know I just it was a distant thing it's been a kind of late discovery of mine but my brother put it really well my brother's a voracious reader and and he um he's one of those annoying people like Alan Moore that just reads it all and then can relay it back to you entirely but he said because I was I was on the phone to him getting frustrated and saying you know that I don't know enough and I'm trying really hard and I just don't seem to be able to learn anything and he was saying you know the you know like the it's turtles all the way down idea that um you peel back a layer and there's another layer of knowledge you'll you'll never get to know every single thing in the world but at a certain point you can accept that and and actually think that um how did he phrase it he said you can surrender the intellect in service to humility and I, I and that clicked with me and it was like yes that's exactly right like so I can spend a time with a book and enjoy the feel of it and sort of accept that maybe I'm not understanding it but uh trust that the symbols and these you know magical sentences are somehow imprinting on my brain and giving me the stuff that I will need and getting rid of the stuff that I won't and having books around and yeah like you say just 
the relationship with the book doesn't have to be that you sit down and, and finish the whole thing and then you tell someone about it, you know. I also think there's that, that lovely thing of finding the right book. I was down in um, Farnham, a beautiful bookshop called the Blue Bear Bookshop, and I was chatting to the woman who ran it, and, and the reason it's called the Blue Bear Bookshop is uh, her son uh, has autism and just never read, never read books. Mm -hmm. And then I think when he was 16, he somehow got hold of a copy of a book called, uh, I think it's The 13 and a Half Adventures of Captain Blue Bear. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these really fantastic, weird little drawings leaping around in a huge number of different ideas sometimes it's like a douglas adams novel there's little bits of science all these and he just read it in one one sitting and now can't stop reading and it, and it's like you know years later mm -hmm. he's gone off in lots of different directions i think i think he's at university now so but it was it took the age of 16 there was no book and then that book that just happened to be lying around that yeah. was it and 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 i think you know and sometimes that can i mean who do you like when when you were writing um william the conqueror did you find yourself beforehand in any sense of preparation thinking, oh, right, there's, I'm just going to see something about structure or maybe about stories or maybe about books by musicians? I mean, I was trying to think, obviously, you've got people like Nick Cave and Leonard Cohen, you know, uh, mm -hmm. writing novels as well. Um, I don't know. Because it was a, like a brand new discipline, I'd never written books before. Um, like I say, I've done, done scripts and songs. Like in the in in my book, William describes songwriting as the heroine of creative endeavors because it's just such a ugh, such a quick fix, you know. If you're trying to do something creative, you know, the idea that you can write a song that takes less time for you then to perform it is always been like a really magical idea to me. Um, so that's what I'm like, sort of quite impatient and and uh, need things done quickly. So the idea of writing a book, I just made the mistake of assuming that you know, I needed to start at the beginning. Once upon a time, there was a boy called William and I started that, working my way through it, thinking, um, do you know George Saunders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote an essay called Vonnegut in Sumatra, which was about his discovery of Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but he was describing how he'd wanted to be a writer and that he'd made the mistake of thinking that good writing meant hard reading. Um, and I really like that's exactly how I felt, you know, that the mistake I was making was thinking that I needed to try and write like Herman Hesse. So it was just overly poetic prose about, you know, basically going and then this and happened and then he went here and then this happened. And this really kind of turgid, boring <laughs> story that I got about two thirds of the way through before I hit a wall and realised I didn't know anything about writing books. And I just kind of put it aside and forgot about it for a while. Um, and then, much like George Saunders, which is why Slaughterhouse-Five gets a little mention in, in my novel, um, I read that and something broke open in my brain about not having to describe every single thing that you mention, you know, like a, a soldier is a soldier and a wood is a wood. It doesn't have to be sort of, have this sort of heft and weight behind every single description. And I really latched onto that. And um, I was in Indonesia at the time, traveling around with my family. And I'd printed out this manuscript that I'd been working on, thinking maybe I'd you know, go through it and see if there was anything worth hanging on to. And as soon as I started reading it, um, I hated it. It was so boring and so like void of humor or personality or anything. But I was sat in a hammock in, in Thailand. So what are you gonna do? So I, I had a red pen and I just thought it'd be fun to start marking this thing as if I was like a disgruntled, you know, frustrated um, teacher that was just at the end of their tether because their students were so useless. 
So I started marking it with this red pen, you know, underlining things and saying, this is bullshit, you know, it didn't happen like this and God almighty, you know, just criticizing everything. And as I started doing that, that's where the idea of the voice came from and this the dialogue of like the, the two different perspectives on the same story, just, um, if, I've probably strayed from your original question, but um, it no, doesn't I, matter if if I had a rule which meant I didn't stray from questions, I would stand <laughs> above you. And but I think that's a, a very interesting that one. I think where you were kind of mentioning a little bit that sometimes that the illusion of significance that comes with impenetrability, so mm -hmm. that you you yeah, you know it. a lot of the kind of greatest writers. It's a, I, I find that a lot with cinema, a lot of films that I was scared of are not hard to understand they might have many different layers of meaning you know it is people like, i remember the first time that i watched an ingmar bergman film mm -hmm. and i was like why have i put this up off for so long right. I thought somehow yeah. It, yeah. it was going to be work or you know tarkovsky or whatever and i think it's the same with you know vonnegut is such a great example isn't he because so he makes it look so utterly easy oh, and and you read yeah. something like slapstick is one where i just go i don't even know what this is <laughs> and i don't know if you're allowed to write like this but obviously yeah. you are allowed to and there's something really fast and then you sometimes turn to these you know what you're told are great works of of, of recent literature and you just go this is all the time laying out the intelligence mm. of the author and the reference yeah. for it. And, and I think that bit of when you start off and you think, oh, I better write how writers write. And you yeah. imagine some kind of New York writer there who's... Yeah, yeah. big mistake, yeah. So when you when you found that, you know, this first, this two-thirds of a book was basically disposable, <laughs> but yeah. do, do you now get a sense that you wrote yourself into the place, but by that, the, the you know, the size of what you would consider to be an error, mm -hmm. you... Was that was it? Shortly afterwards, you went. Oh, hang on a minute! I know that what the voice that's meant to be there. Or was that even after that? Were you still developing and still finding to get to the the once upon a time moment, which really was the beginning? Um, well, I think the uh, I think the arc was kind of already there when I, when I knew that it was going to be loosely based on my own childhood. You know, the the sort of structure of growing up in Cornwall and then moving to New Zealand and then eventually getting to London and <clears throat> you know trying to make it as a musician the arc was really clear but um just it was just the yeah the, the device of telling it in a linear fashion made no sense at all because i don't know it just didn't it, it didn't feel right you know it didn't feel like i was writing the thing it felt like i was trying to be someone else but the introduction of the voice which like i say started as a kind of just an angry teacher telling him telling the student how awful he is sort of trying to think of what that voice could possibly be you know is i didn't want it to be like a you know, just a, like a devil on a shoulder or anything kind of too Steppenwolfy or anything like that. So trying to figure out what exactly the voice was and what the voice's motives might be and why it was that he wanted, he had such a different perception of what was important from the childhood and what it was that actually made William who he is, where we find him at the start of the book as like an 18 year old in this squat in London, um, trying to figure out how on earth he could have strayed so far from the vision he'd, he'd had of himself as a kid, you know? um but the um if i've done it again i've, I've no 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 you haven't at all don't worry about it you you you, you know you're still in the right area in yeah, no, the uh um it's good <laughs> but that's it because it, it, it seems there's quite a few novelists who that that bit of do you do you ever find a line where you go other uh, points where you go oh my god these 20 pages are 
as verbatim as they could be with with what is left in your memory and then do you go and then it goes off into a world which is William the Conqueror not as you are or do you see it generally having overall is it is it pretty much you know it it, it is uh Ordell fiction <laughs> uh yeah it's yeah it's, it's close there's definitely deviations mostly through having to construct like a timeline but that's because my memory isn't very linear. Like I'm the opposite of my wife, whose memory is, you know, starting from this date, these are the events that happened in order. She's, she's a social worker, so she has to, she, her memory has to work like that because everything has to be recorded. Whereas mine's just sort of images and vignettes and they muddled around and they cross over and they don't match and stuff. So I had to, I had to create a timeline in order for it to be, um, for the arc to kind of make sense that he was 18 and he was gonna walk through his life and you know catch up to himself as being 18. So I had to deviate somewhat in, in terms of the actual timeline, but it was more like, um, it was less about being verbatim with, with what happened and more about sort of trying to find the essence of the truth of it, if you like, you know? Like, um, you, have you read Norm MacDonald's book? No, and I really should, shouldn't I? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's, I laughed out loud for the first time reading a book in ages. It was just really funny. But he said a good thing about that because his 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 memoir, quote unquote, is called Based on a True Story. So it completely deviates. But he said it's it's truthful, but it's not factual. And it's I sort of feel the same about my book. It's like the, the truth of the character is kind of in there and, and honest um, about some of the things that you know I was maybe up to but the deviations in narrative are just like anything any kind of story that you tell your mates down the pub it evolves over the years anyway and you, you leave bits out and for the sakes of uh, you know what's the classic line don't let the truth get in the way of a good story or whatever but there is that other things we were talking about before as well is, is it, it, it's truthful but not factual seems to me the perfect way of you know because I would imagine has your brother uh read it uh, yeah, yeah, he's read bits of it. Yeah, there's not really many people that have read it. I kind of sat on it because nobody asked me to write this book. It's not like I'd been commissioned to write a book and hey, everybody, I'm writing a book. It was this kind of secret thing I was doing. So um, apart from my the people that are helping me put it out and my mum and my dad and yourself, it, there's not many people that have actually read it. So this is a bit of a relief actually getting getting to talk about it and actually um, get it out there and. I've spoken to my brother about it and obviously my wife was there throughout the creation of it, but you know, she has to deal with me coming in and saying, I've cracked it. This is it. This is the final version. I've nailed it. And then two weeks later, it's something completely different. So she's probably got quite a muddled idea of what it actually is as well. Um, but no, my brother would probably appreciate being left out, I think. And pl plus there's, it gives me somewhere to go with uh, the continuation of William's story. The idea that he, um, wrote a book but didn't include his brother that seems like a good premise for another book you know but I quite like the fact that your brother is almost when he's reading it it's <laughs> as if because he's not uh in the room he mm. is able to watch it all so he is just the sight he can still be when he's reading it he can still be the silent bro brother yeah yeah definitely he um <clears throat> what is interesting talking to my brother about it is what I didn't realize is just how similar we were as children because he was like 18 months older than me and seemed to take the I don't know it was a he was a fan I always say he was a brilliant older brother in that he always made sure I was okay coming up into the big school and you know looked out for me and whatever 
but he also probably took quite a lot of the heat from what was going on in my parents divorce and my dad's illness um, and stuff like that and so I'd led a fairly felt like I led a fairly easy childhood because I had this kind of barrier of, a, of an older brother always kind of protecting me and I thought that's who he was he was this kind of strong solid nothing can hurt me kind of guy but it was interesting talking to him about it the book um, recently and and finding out that actually he was feeling a lot of the same things that I was feeling about it all very confused about you know the secrecy and addiction and uh, illness and moving around and all that kind of thing uh, yeah that was a very interesting perspective on it yeah that realization that a lot of people are screaming however stoical they may appear mm. you know that that bit yeah. of oh, someone's confidently going through a situation and that yeah. so often that person confidently going through the situation therefore no one even checks if they're okay or what's going yeah. on because they think well done you've really it, it's i always go back to this philippa perry once said to me she said the, the problem with being human is we judge everyone else from the outside and we judge ourselves from the inside mm -hmm. and once you realize that that's going on with every single person in the room yeah. and i think that is one one of the beautiful things about you know well about your book and about that opportunity it gives to reflect on the the inner self mm. who is so you both got a lot of you you know moving through the world yeah but there yeah. is also you know that the the, the thoughts within and you know I, I just find that that that's what i love about um i think novels anyway is, is mm. just it, it takes you into that place where everyone can suddenly go that otherness it allows other people yeah, to experience yeah. the otherness, which is very often not exposed <laughs> in, in reality. Yeah, big time, big time. Yeah. And what about in terms of the difference between exploring your childhood in the songs on, on the three albums? Mm -hmm. What what? What, what has been the big i mean I, I'm, I'm trying to think really I, I, love, I love those albums by the way they're excellent and it's, it's just um but what what are you able to do what, what are the biggest differences do you think in terms of the possibilities in in the book which were not available to you when you were creating songs yeah um i think the the one way i tried to look at it was that the songs are about the so they're about the same person and they're about the same story and narrative and life and all the things that went on but the songs are from like my present perspective you know as a, as a kind of adult that's got his own kids so was, so the songs are from like a 36 37 year old point of view whereas the book is very much from this 18 year old's point of view you know so it's um it's a much more visceral approach to the to the story because it feels much closer you know like it's all kind of raw whereas with the songs just having that space to be able to reflect i don't know it's it, meant I could uh, inject a lot more humor into uh, being being a folky singer songwriter is you know I've got a much to be grateful for for being sort of welcomed into the folk world but it's quite a serious place um, and it never quite felt like me but uh, so so moving away from that and, and making the, the music of William the Conqueror it was nice to be able to inject uh, I don't know elements of what I was into when I was younger so some of the grunge and the punk and the um well, what would you call it a, a sort of well the attitude i suppose so there's more attitude in the songs but it's coming from a, a mature place whereas the book is i suppose much rawer yeah and um, and much more youthful i did i did have definitely have some anxiety around the idea of having the central character be the narrator and him be someone that sort of thinks he's got a good handle on words and language and might be a good writer and might be a good lyricist because i thought well 
does this mean I'm cheating? Like if, if I write a really shitty over overly poetic line, I could just leave it and say, that's, that's the character. That's not me being rubbish over there. That's the character. Um, but it was useful to have the voice, you know, this, this other point of view within it, because it meant I could pull myself up on those times when he was being a little bit flowery. And there's a, there's a bit early on in the book where he's about to describe the stars and the voice says, well, why, why even bother trying to describe the stars? It's so overdone. It's, you, you're not going to be able to bring anything new to this. Just leave it alone. Um, so that was, yeah, that was kind of useful. The folk scenes, because Grace Petrie, friend of mine, where she, I remember in the early days of her on the folk scene, said, "Oh my God, some of the rules that come up." Like when she played Sidmouth Folk Festival, oh, yeah. I think <laughs> I think it was like the first time she played it. She said she, people would just stare at her in the street as if you know she was perpetually Dylan going electric, basically, <laughs> as far as they were concerned. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I mean, we definitely had some pushback. You know, it did. It took a few years of transitioning from. I had enough of a fan base as, as myself, as Rory Joseph, you know, to think, well, you know, be able to carry some of them into this new project. But we definitely had pushback, which was kind of weird because, you know, it wasn't 1966 at the Albert Hall. It was, um, yeah, I just thought people would be all right with kind of me plugging in and going electric, but apparently not. It's, and like I say, I'm very grateful to the, to the, to the folk scene, you know, people like Seth Lakeman and, um, Steve Knightley from Show of Hands, you know, they're really kind in taking me on tour and allowing me to kind of build enough of a fan base that I could that I could have a career out of it. But um, I don't know, it just just never quite me. I was never very good at storytelling on stage. You know, there's a big tradition of storytelling between the songs and explaining where things come from. And I don't know, I was never very good at doing that and making it sound like it was the first time I'd ever told that story every night. You know, I just I suppose it's something comedians go through all the time, isn't it, with jokes? Yeah, I suppose it's an interest because I'm not very good at that either. So that's why I have to try and change everything yeah. all the time. It's because it doesn't take me long. To, I remember doing a tour supporting a, a friend of mine once and I wasn't allowed to change anything because that was one of the rules. One of the rules was I had to do the same half an hour every single night. So he knew exactly what I'd said on stage. I think it was just a kind of control <laughs> thing. And I, I think it was about 60 dates in and we were doing the Albert Hall and I remember that as I was on stage, I started looking at my nails and I thought, this cannot do this cannot, you know, and there are, whereas other people can perpetually create that illusion. I, yeah. I'm, I'm not very good at, uh, no, at that. I don't think. I've never been very good at it. The, the last solo album I made was a, a kind of love letter to a friend of mine that had passed away. And so the songs meant an awful lot to me and, you know, in some sense required a little bit of context, maybe on stage, but um, I ended up touring that album for about three years and it started to feel like, you know, I, I really didn't want those songs and, and the stories behind those songs to become meaningless, you know, for them to just kind of roll off me. And that's where William kind of started bubbling around in my head, you know, this idea of being able to create something where I didn't need to tell stories or, or certainly write songs that are so kind of idiosyncratic to my own personal life that I wouldn't be able to tell people what they were about anyway, because you know, where would I start? It's um, so that was another another kind of um, useful stepping off point, I think, was was exactly that what you're talking about, just looking at your nails and thinking, hang on, this isn't right. You know, this is supposed to mean something. And yet here I am kind of, you know, looking into the rafters or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting thing when something you start to realise that if you do it every single night, it will become emotionally meaningless. Yeah, definitely. We have that. We have that with songs as well. Sometimes you'll, you know, 
leave songs off the set list because you're just not in the right frame of mind to be performing it you know or it happens all the time i mean I, that's kind of how i fell into this world of being able to continue with william the conqueror was i was, I was supporting uh courtney marie courtney marie andrews at the social in london mm-hmm. and um i was about to play a song that i sort of very rarely played it was a song that um it's, it's in the book, it's in about chapter three, you'll, you'll sort of see where the similarities between the song and what's happening in the story. It's all around his dad and his kind of attempted or or, or maybe successful suicide. And um, so I have this song called The Burden that I've rarely played and something in my head just told me that maybe I should, maybe I should play it tonight. And I paused on stage and just, I must've been muttering to myself, wondering about whether I should play it or not. And then said, I'm gonna play something I don't often play and played this song. And anyway, the next day I got a, an email from um, a lady called Laura Barton, who writes for The Guardian, who said, why on earth wouldn't you play that song? That is what a beautiful song. And she sent it to um, Blue Raincoat Publishing, who then ended up you know, being my music publishers and, and, and who are now being the, the publishing company that are putting out the book as well. So yeah, very fortuitous that, um, that I played that song sporadically, definitely. When you became William, the conqueror mm-hmm. on stage did you start to notice a difference in audience reaction did did the conversations that you had afterwards at the bar and things i'm just uh, i'm interested yeah. you know in that new person that you well not new person but you know this 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 yeah. new way of kind of exposing uh, yourself definitely yeah i mean at, at the beginning there was like i said some pushback so there would be people saying are you not going to play uh, any of those other songs anymore <laughs> you know having to let them down gently and say, no, sorry. And then, but it, I don't know if it was more a kind of selfish thing. Uh, it was more about what I was taking from it because I think I'd devoted my career to making sure I pleased the fans as it were. Um, so every time I made an album, they, the, the, the idea that I'd better write something that the fans are gonna like, because obviously I need to go out on the road and sell this, you know? And that seemed like a strange A&R thing. So when William the Conqueror was, creative when I started doing it it was less important to me how people reacted to it and more about how it made me feel and you know trying to figure out different ways of being able to inject something into uh, my performances or whatever that that was just different to how it was before it's still me still still got the beard still got the you know the, the denim jacket or whatever but something was different and just kind of rolling with that you know accepting that that not everybody was on board to begin with but um you know, we we powered through that. I think we've got ourselves to a to a pretty decent place. And then, of course, the lockdown happened, which was very useful for us all. But you know, whatever. Are you back on tour soon? By the way, uh, yeah, we we are. We did a little tour in November, which was really good. It didn't quite feel back to normal out there, but it was good enough. You know that um, you could start to feel positive about the future. Um, I don't know if you've had this, but you, you you sell this many tickets and then only this many people turn up. So a lot of people sort of changing their minds at the last minute and that, that kind of thing. But yeah, we're on tour in March and, and hopefully doing some bookstores as well, doing some book readings, which would be great um, along with that. I'm very much looking forward to that because, yeah, that's, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I felt that's something that interests me is, as, as, as a musician, because mm-hmm. when I'm performing, I still have a lot of voices in my head, but probably one or two fewer than when I'm walking through real world. Right. When you're doing a, a, a music gig, mm-hmm. how much 
can you get because i'm always fascinated like for instance i think some musicians not all musicians but you are more likely to be able to be for instance drunk and still able to play in a way that spoken word is really not it's not possible. So immediately I'm thinking there's a different kind of memory that goes on. You know, some of the people, some of the great guitarists and bassists and all of those things who are able to do both. So that then just makes me wonder also about what is what you can see in your head when you're stood on stage. You know, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, a lot of it starts to become muscle memory, I suppose. I don't know. Um, what am I thinking when I'm on stage? I don't know. It's just very, I feel very relaxed and very comfortable. There's only two places I'm that comfortable in the world. One is in my own home with my own family. And the other is behind a mic on stage. It's just, a, I don't know. It's, I'm not really aware of it necessarily. It's like you're trying to, I'm not even consciously doing it, but I don't want to use the word shamanic, but it's like, you know what I mean? There's there's something else going on there, and it's just trying to enjoy that and kind of tune into into not thinking too much about what comes up next. And maybe there's some considerations for the audience about certain pockets that are getting into this, or there might be a, a rowdy bunch over there. Or you, there's a little bit of that awareness, but not to the sort of not to sort of Ken Dodd level or anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's much more, uh, more much more just trying to be in the moment and provide some sort of conduit for the audience to release whatever you know they've got their reasons for being there and you don't know what it is so you're just trying to be a gen a general kind of force it for them to release whatever it is they've come out for the evening for you know does that make sense yeah it does i mean i like that shamanic on the other side of it as as a spectator i do think i, I watch people on stage certain acts mm. and it is the most lot that i can get yeah. Without, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> Idols, Savages, PJ Harvey, Nick Cave. Oh. You know, it's a lovely thing to watch. Some some of my friends, like I mentioned Grace Petrie before, but she means so much to so many people. And I look around at the audience. And now, of course, I'm so old as well. I'm, I'm normally <laughs> older than the parents of the support band, you know, who are selling the T-shirts and stuff like that. But it's a really, I, I, you know, when you, that, that's something that I think is so beautiful with the certain musicians and certain artists. Mm that it means so much yes uh you know and 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 the the it's a you know music which can sometimes seem like quite an arcane route and sometimes you can't even you're not even entirely sure what the lyrics mean but Mm. for a lot of people it seems to give them permission afterwards to go oh i've watched that person up there and i think now i can be a bit more myself than i was you know before i experienced it yes definitely yeah i mean i don't know if it's the same for you as a comic watching other comics but there's sometimes that you're going to you know i love going to festivals obviously and i love live music but sometimes it can feel like work and you know if you start if you start checking out the rig of the guitarist or you know the the poise of the bass player or whatever then it starts to become like work so i i really appreciate it when I'm so wrapped up in the whole spectacle that I can't focus on one thing. I'm just like allowing myself to let go of all of that. And it's getting rarer as I get older and get more entrenched in, in you know, trying to make a living out of this thing. But it does happen, you know, like seeing Tom Waits for the first time, just, uh, just blew my mind in, you know, four people can make that noise and tell those stories for two hours solidly. I was, I was completely lost, you know, um, so yeah, it's uh, don't, don't let's not talk about live music. It's <laughs> oh, 
And on, uh, I know you, you say reading is not, is not necessarily the thing that you you know it, it's it's a bit more troublesome sometimes. But who recently, or who who are the ones? Yeah, you know, are there certain people beyond Herman Hess who you know you return to, or you go a new one's out at last? I can't wait. Yeah, well, I mean, I like much like my favorite thing as a music fan. My favorite thing ever has been when I discover somebody that's already got a back catalogue that exists. You know, um, so so discovering Kurt Vonnegut and realizing how much awesome stuff there was to get through. So I'll, if, if I'm going away anywhere, I'll I'll try and pick up a new Kurt Vonnegut. Um, what am I reading at the moment? I'm reading. Oh, you're like this. I'm reading uh, William Blake versus the World. John oh, it's such a great book. Oh, yeah, I can't stop banging on about that. That was last year's books. I think that I banged on about most were probably that and uh, Selena God's Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Oh, I've they not read that. Um... I'll put that on my list. But yeah, I'm reading that. That's awesome. Um, I'm reaching reading In Search of Stardust by John Larson. It's like oh, a, more, of a, more of a coffee table book. Do you know, have you seen the film uh, Fireball, the Werner Herzog one about the asteroids? No. Oh, check it out. It's on Apple TV, I think. Um, but anyway, there's a guy in there called John Larson, who's a Norwegian jazz guitarist, but who has in later life become somebody that finds cosmic dust that's fallen from the astro belts. And he finds it with this, with a magnet and a baggie on top of roofs in Oslo, scraping along these magnet and picking them up and putting everything under a microscope. And some of these things he's found, discovered that, you know, come from a place that could potentially be as old as the Big Bang. But this coffee table book is just, illustrate uh, just photographs of all of the things that he's found it's called it's called um in search of stardust oh god i'm going to get that immediately yeah, I, want to, I want to do an infinite monkey cage on that that sounds fantastic oh yeah no, it'd be right up your street yeah yeah that is yeah. so good it's called what's the full title is uh, um, amazing meteor amazing micrometeorites and their terrestrial imposters so it separates like the things that you might find in like a welder's factory or, uh, you know, things you find on the side of the road and tells you how to be able to distinguish from the things that we find on Earth to the things that have definitely come from outer space and we have no idea where they've come from. It's, it's awesome. It's really good. Oh, that is a fantastic recommendation. Yeah. And uh, in terms of uh, uh, William the Conqueror, so you're going to be doing some book gigs as well on tour in uh, yeah. in March. In, in yeah. March. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is, uh, I've got my, is it famous Blue Raincoat? Is it? Um... Well, that's where the name comes from. Yeah, the Leonard Cohen song, but it's Blue Raincoat Publishing. Blue the... Raincoat Publishing. Yeah. Brilliant. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm I'm halfway through it, and it's fantastic. And there's loads of, I, I love the illustrations as well. I think oh, good. yeah, thank you. Yeah, Liz and Ellie, yeah, really. Yeah, really they good. they look so. It really really works. They're kind and, of, kind uh, the, of children's bookish with a with a with a pretty dark edge to them. I, that's what I like about. Them. Yeah, that kind of smeared charcoal mm -hmm. element yeah. of of the. Uh, yeah, no, ab absolutely fantastic. So, uh, Rory, thank you so much for, for joining us. Go and wh where's your website so people can check the dates for, uh, for March? WilliamTheConqueror.net. And obviously, we're on all of the social media places where Instagram and Facebook and, and whatnot, all of that stuff. All of Brilliant. That. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. Uh, as I said, hopefully, Josie's going to be back with us uh, uh, again soon. And we've got some more silent shambles uh, coming out as well am i off on tour i can't remember i think i'm going to be at Larm weekend and various other things as well and then eventually i'll be back on tour with brian cox in our perpetually postponed uh um tour the uh, horizons um thanks very much everyone for listening bye bye <laughs> 
Thank you very much for listening. Yes, head to williamtheconqueror.net to find out all the dates that Rory's going to be touring around and also how you can pre-order the book, which is out in March, the first week of March. Robert's book is available from all good booksellers and signed copies are available from cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Like, rate, review, five stars, Apple Podcasts, all that business. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe. Bye for now. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.